Mark chapter 12. We're going to be talking about takers and givers. Takers and givers. Lord, would you use these moments we have as we open these scriptures. Help us just be able to take a deep breath and recognize that your word is open before us. May we open our hearts to you to use this however you choose. Lord, may we not just be hearers, but doers. I pray, God, that you would give within us a work of your grace, that we would want to draw near to you an application of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, by the way, next Saturday here at the church, uh, throughout the day, starting at 9.30 and however long it takes, but uh, there's going to be an examination of Pastor Jordan and his expression of doctrine. And he's doing a great job with that. We're studying his materials on Wednesday night. That's been a great discussion as well, and he's prepping for that. But that will be throughout the day on Saturday. You're welcome to attend and just listen in on that. You'll be, you'll be moved in your understanding of doctrine and appreciation for the Word of God. And so you're invited to come to that. Uh, there'll be like 12 or 13 pastors here peppering him with doctrine questions about his doctrinal statement. And so that'll be throughout the day. You can come and go as, as you see fit with that. And then on Sunday, we'll have a, a, a fellowship afterward. We'll have a, a dinner. What are we having? Soups and sandwiches, all right? And I think many of you are signing up for that as well. The question is, what if he doesn't pass? Well, we're still going to eat, all right? <laughs> so we'll definitely want to eat. How do you best learn, you? Uh, for many, we learn by instruction. We hear somebody up talking, and we have some notes, and we fill in the blank. And, you know, that's great. That's a good, useful tool. And, but, you know, I, I find that I, I hear instruction, and it's kind of in one ear and out the other, and I keep the notes, and, and I forget where the notes are. And 24 hours later, I can't remember what was spoken. Right? Any of you like that? It takes some work to be able to remember what it was that was said. By the way, can I just say this? I, I, I read something recently that, the way to retain is, is to talk about it soon after you've heard it, actually speak about it. And so maybe on the way home, just say, so what was your takeaway today? And you'll probably remember that that you spoke that you said was your takeaway, that said. But for me, the way I learn best is by observation. Um, maybe that's the way it is with you. I, I watch. I watch people. It used to be I'd watch people at the mall. You remember what a mall is? Uh, that's way back there. But now it's Texas Roadhouse. People are packed into those stalls with a table in the middle, and uh, they have all this cow food brought out to them. And, and, and um, I watch how many rolls people eat. How many have you eaten? I think my record is six or seven. You know, that just, um, I watch what people order. I look for that old couple that's sharing a meal, that's smart, and taking their time. And the waitress is kind of trying to hurry them out because they want somebody else in this so they can get somebody else in that stall. Uh, I watch for how many people are on their phones the entire time while they're eating and not even talking. I watch how little conversation is going on at the table. That's, that, that troubles me. Observation. Just watching, open your eyes and seeing what's going on. 
as I look back on my life, I think I've learned more from just watching what other people do with what God says, and then I, em- I try to emulate that. I just, uh, observation. So there's something going on here in this text about observation. As we look in this text here in Mark chapter 12, note my, Christ's method of teaching here. Jesus wants the disciples to observe what was going on around them and then learn from it. Notice these observations. What does Jesus see that he wants us to see, all right? I see takers and givers. You see takers and givers around you? Psychologists observe, and by the way, that's what they're good at, observing, all right? Just watching and studying humanity, and so often... Their observations are good, but they don't necessarily have a real skill at giving answers to their observations. Uh, See, we are made more than just physical or emotional creatures. We're made in the image of God. There's something spiritual about us, and we need God's help for change. And that's why we have the mercy of God and the grace of God through the scriptures revealing Jesus Christ. But which one are you? A taker or a giver? And how would you know? So I've just been working through a list. Um, and by the way, I would love for you to add to this list. These are just several observations that I've watched about takers and givers. Just a list I'm coming up with and just something to think about here. And if you think of some others, go ahead and text them to me, and I'd love them to add them to my list because I need these. But takers will say, I need you to do this for me. Givers will say, What can I do for you? Takers are focused on their own agenda. Givers want to further your agenda. Takers are greedy. Givers are gracious. Takers are entitled. Givers enable. Takers use people. Givers serve people. Takers are concerned about themselves, how I appear, how I what I get. Givers are concerned for others. What can I do? Are you a giver or are you a taker? Takers will stab you in the back eventually. Givers will give you the shirt off their back inevitably. Think of any others that come to mind. Another one I was thinking about. Takers create conflict. Givers create camaraderie. If there's a taker and you have another taker in their midst, they're going to be button heads all the time. But if you have a giver who's with a giver, they have something in common. They love to give. So which are you, a taker or a giver? And I had to come away from that list looking at it thinking, in this world, why would anyone want to be a giver? It seems that... Takers are the one who get ahead, they get what they want, and givers get run over. But there's so much more to the story than that. In our text here in Mark chapter 12, I just realized I made a horrible mistake. I got up here, and Monty was supposed to read the scripture before I got up here. So I'm going to do something right now. I know you're good? All right. (laughs) 
All right. Well, we won't have Monty come up to this. He's good. He's good. All right. So, okay, yeah. So, let's read the text together. I'm allowed one mistake, right? Is that, is that at least? Okay. Let's start reading in Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. Everybody was noticing that. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he calls his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor woman has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, just a portion, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. Wow. This is the word of the Lord. So he points to the scribes. Jesus gives a warning here, a caution. It's like a, a big orange sign that says caution. Jesus gives a warning here, and he points to the scribes. So this is right there in front of them. And he's saying, beware of the scribes. That's, that's a caution. That's a warning. And Jesus gives a compliment at the end of their text in verse 43. This poor widow put in more than all those. I think we need to understand why Jesus cautions us against the takers and yet compliments this humble giver. Learn from what Jesus cautions about the takers, would you? Learn from this. The scribes were part of the, most, for the most part, were part of the, the Pharisaical clan, these Pharisees, who were experts in the law, interpreters of the law. They were the enforcers, and they had great political power because of their positions in religion. And everyone knew, this is important to understand, when, when Jesus is pointing to these scribes and he's saying, beware, everyone knew that they were corrupt. They all knew that the scribes forced them to pay ten times the actual price for a sacrifice animal. If you were traveling a distance, you couldn't bring your animal along, so you'd have to come to Jerusalem, buy an animal there, and it was just the price was just greatly inflated. They also had a money-changing system that was brazenly a cheat operation. Everyone knew this. They were users, using their position and their power to make themselves rich. <clears throat> and you know, people tended just to go along with it because, well, because there was no other option. They had the corner of the market. They were the controllers, the users. A taker is a user. He will use others for his own purposes. Beware of that. That is, watch out and be careful here. Now, I want to be very careful in examining this text that we don't approach it from a moralistic 
well, I'm just going to be better about not being a user and I'm going to be a, a person that is more giving, giving, giving. It's not about what you make yourself. We're going to see something in this text that I think is incredibly important in the power of understanding the work of the gospel in and around us. They, the, the thing I want us to see here is watching out and being careful because Jesus here is exposing the user's compulsions, their urges, what's going on within, within them, what are their motivations. Notice, they walk around in long robes. Um, I'm glad I don't have to stand up here in church with a long robe. Because right now I'd be going, oh, I'm kind of uncomfortable here with this. Uh, a lot of churches do that, whatever. But, I, but here, back in that culture, up, some of my lines kind of, I'm not crossing those out. Some of my lines kind of got moved in the transition here, but we'll fix that. Um, they, they, they walk around in long robes. What was going on here? Well, the scribes had a custom to put on a prayer shawl over their robe, and it was, it was long, and, and they're reciting prayers and this, with this prayer shawl. It makes them look very spiritual. And they, and they made a full-length prayer stole. So as, as you understand what a stole is, it's, it's kind of a pullover. But this went all the way to the, the floor, and at the bottom edges were these large, ornate tassels that, that kind of scraped up against the floor. They touched the edge of the ground. And this goes back to some instructions God had given the priest back in, in Numbers chapter 15. But here in this culture, what had developed was this was a way of letting everyone else know, I'm important. Everyone knew they were important because of what they were wearing and this these tassels that were fluttering around as they were walking along. If you can think of graduation ceremony at a big college, all right, you have the, the students that have their, their cap and gown, and you have this little tassel, you know, so that tassel is like, I just finished undergrad. And then you have all the professors that are, are up front, and, and they have their, their garb on, and they have a little bit different tassels. Maybe, maybe their tassel is um, for a master's degree. or uh, And then you get into the doctorate, and then they have a different kind of hat on. And, and, it, and wh what's the point? You have a higher status because of what you're wearing. That's what was going on here. They had to be noticed. There was this compulsion to be noticed. Their appearance was very important so that everyone would notice. Now, we have different ways of getting noticed today. We don't put on long prayer stoles and, and, and walk around so we can be seen like that. But there are so many ways that we go about saying, hey, I want to be noticed. How do you go about wanting to be noticed? It might be what you wear. It might be how you act. It might be what you put on social media. What's the whole thing about social media? You're trying to figure out a way to be noticed by thousands and millions and, and hundreds of thousands of followers wanting to be noticed. Also, notice this. They, they like the greetings in marketplaces. Why? So if, if one of these scribes came by and you were a merchant, you were there just working, and they, they're walking along the roadway, it was your duty, it was your responsibility that in their presence... They're a dignified scholar, so you stand because they're important as a scribe. So what was their compulsion? They expected to be respected. 
So they wanted to be noticed and they wanted to be respected. Uh, they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feast. Again, I'm asking why. So what's going on here with this? Well, in the temple, so you've seen pictures of, of that massive temple there in Jerusalem and how beautiful it was at that time. But around the outside, you had a large courtyard that anyone was allowed into. It was called the courtyard for the Gentiles. Then in the very front section of the entrance to this temple area, you had what was called the courtyard of the women. The women were allowed in here. The next courtyard closer was the courtyard for the priest, and only men could go in there. And then you had the, the temple where you had the holy place and the holy of holies. And it was a very, very holy place. But on the outside, you had the temple for the women. And in this, or this, this courtyard for the women. And in this courtyard, the ladies were allowed to be in there. And surrounding this courtyard were benches along the outside. And then they had 13 offering boxes. That was the predominant thing. If you're coming into this area, you're expected to be putting something into the offering plate. Not the offering plate, the offering box. And everybody's watching. So in this temple, in the courtyard of the women, the benches lining the outward edges, the common people were expected just to sit on the ground. You know, you know how uncomfortable it is to sit on the ground? I was talking with Shadrach the other day. He just had his first wedding ceremony. They have the, the official national wedding, the, 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 the government wedding in January, and then they have their Christian wedding in May, and it's a beautiful picture of, of the bridegroom going to, to marry his bride and paying the price and he came in with a dowry and so forth but he had to crawl in on his knees into this little hut and then on the ground he had to sit in this hut without ever looking up if he looked up he was he he would get admonished he had to have his head down from seven o'clock at night until 11 o'clock and then the father-in-law and all the others come into the room and they sit down and he has to sit there he's on the floor very uncomfortable he said it was just it was so sore and um Eventually, the father-in-law checks out all the dowry, all the different gifts and so forth. And then about 1 a.m., <laughs> he says, okay, we're good. And then the party starts, all right? And then the, the, everything goes along with that. But he was saying it was so uncomfortable to have to sit on the ground. What if we here in our church did not have these pews, and everybody, when you came into church, you just had to sit on the floor? What if that was our custom? Well, that was what was here. However, the people that were important had benches to sit on. And that was a position of status. The scribes had a much more comfortable place that everybody could see them around, around the edges. And the scribes always had an opportunity to sit at the head of the table during the feasts. And they were honored in this way because of who was allowed to sit in those places. So what was their compulsion? They wanted to be honored, have that status. So they wanted to be noticed, they wanted to be respected, and they wanted to be honored. What what it motivates you in life? What is, is really at the top of your, your passions? I, I want people to see me. I want people to respect me. I want my family to respect me. I want, I want to have, have status. I want other people to say, hey, you're important too. There's got to be more to life than that. Jesus 
exposes their compulsions. Jesus exposes their corruption. Notice this. They devour widows' houses. Now, um, would you circle or underline that word houses and also circle the word pretense? We're going to highlight those two in comprehension of what's going on here as well. They devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They devoured. That's the idea of their plundering or their, it literally means to eat up, to, to, to consume. These scribes would request money from the widows for themselves, even though the law had forbidden that, but they reworked it so it, they could have a workaround. But they would take the money from, from these widows, these women that were in the temple area. They'd also swindle them out of their estates. An old widow needing protection of her estate would bring in one of these scribes to take care of the legal work that went along with that. And so they would take the money from the older widows. Again, they're, they're getting older. They're deficient in their mental abilities. And so these older women had lost their ability to comprehend exactly what's going on around them. And, and these scribes would literally steal them blind. They, and then they would blame bad market conditions or whatever. And then, because these women were in debt to these scribes, they would take their houses as a pledge for their debt and let them continue living there, knowing that they're not going to last very long. And they owed them. And then when the widow died those houses would become owned by the scribes, nothing left to her children. And they insisted that the widows keep on giving in the temple box to purchase God's blessing as they demanded this from everyone in their system. These same crooks would make long, drawn-out public prayers. So this is going on. Everybody knows how corrupt it is. But Jesus is pointing it out. And these same crooks would make long, drawn-out public prayers to leave the impression with the people that they were doing the Lord's work in all of this. It was just the right thing to do. Now, the issue isn't the long prayer. All right? A few weeks ago, we had a day of prayer, and different ones signed up for 30-minute segments. Of, and that was a precious thing. And I really noticed the power of God on our church after that. And it's something we want to come back and do again. But people signed up for 30 minutes. Throughout the day, I would get these messages from people. Pastor, 30 minutes wasn't long enough. It's not that the prayer was long. A um, number of years ago, I had the responsibility at praying for praying at my daughter's wedding, Shannon and Jordan. Uh, she had another person preaching for the service, and, and I was just trying to be the dad. And, um, and, but she asked me to, to lead out in prayer for the family. And so I started praying. I remember praying that God would bless them with children. That's kind of an awkward thing to do at a wedding, but I did. I prayed that God would bless them with children. And sure enough, God's answered that prayer. That's good. All right. And. And that, that God would give them a sweet ministry together and never knowing that God would answer in such a way that we get to be participating in that together. That's kind of cool, isn't it? 
and during this time, and then I, I prayed that God would help them get along, and so far, they're getting along pretty well. It's fun watching how they work through these things, and they're growing as a couple. And, and I prayed that God would bless them indeed and enlarge their coast and have his hand upon them and keep them from evil. And I was asking the Lord to protect them in all their travels. And again, the Lord has been so good in answering these prayers. And I just went on and on and on. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. This dad is up in front praying, and everybody's kind of going, how long is this going to go? I had no clue. I had no clue. And afterwards they said, Dad, did you realize that you prayed longer than the preacher preached? It just went on and on and on. And I, it, sometimes it, that, a prayer like that is not appropriate. Maybe it was, you know, it was too long. Right? Just get up and get out of the way, man. All right. But the problem here with this prayer was the word pretense. They were doing it for a reason that was not real. It was fake. It was a pretense. A false picture was given. Everyone can see through that. Children can see through that. And we wonder why children don't want to come to church. They see through the fake, the hypocrisy. It's a turnoff. What Jesus expresses... The condemnation. Not only does he expose their compulsions and their corruption, but now he's showing that there's going to be condemnation. And what are the words that are given here in this text? There will be greater condemnation. Now, I don't know what's meant by that, but I know it's the reality. For these who are offending through their hypocrisy, well, in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And there are all these condemnations throughout the whole chapter because of their hypocrisy. There's a greater condemnation. Now, I don't understand exactly what that means. I know what condemnation means. I know that the wages of sin is death. And there is a lake of fire, which is the second death. And Jesus was very clear in describing that this was like fire and brimstone. It was, it was an awful experience. And I don't understand all of this, but I know that this condemnation is greater than that. For all eternity. And you know, in the midst of this, in just a short couple of days, a few hours, these takers, these users... Stab Jesus in the back. But God knows the rest of the story. Amen? So do we through the word of God. Number two, learn what Jesus appreciated about the giver. What does he compliment here? How many compliments do you see in Scripture that Jesus gives? Who does Jesus compliment? There are a few. Wouldn't it be fun to be part of this list? He compliments John the Baptist. What does he say about him? None greater until the church. Okay. Um, another one I thought of was the nobleman. No greater faith have I seen in all of Israel. And, and also uh, Mary, you've chosen the better part. Right? Remember Mary and Martha? So t pay attention to what Jesus compliments. Well, here, this widow, there's a compliment dished out. We read here that he watched the people. Jesus is watching. He sees it all. There's nothing hid from him with whom we have to do. 
Thou, God, seest me. Remember that. Jesus is watching. Our children need to understand this truth. We need to understand this truth. Even when we think we're alone, Jesus is watching. And he watched the people. He sits down. He's just in a position where he can take it all in. And he's watching what's going on. And these rich people come in and, and they give of their fancy gifts. And everybody goes, oh, wow, wasn't that a wonderful gift? And look at that. And they make a big show of it. And here comes this little woman that nobody's paying attention to, didn't even see walk in. And, but Jesus watches. Notice the problem. Jesus had highlighted this earlier in our text. The widow had nothing left. And the question is, why? Had it been stolen? Was she one of the victims of these who had been part of the scheme to take widows' houses? And then here's another question. Why does she feel compelled to give all that she has to live on? Was there some sort of an expectation in that culture, a guilt trip? Was there a manipulation or an obligation? Hey, you better keep on giving or else... That's a wrong thing. What's wrong with this picture? Again, there was a system in place that used people. Their whole system was built on the fact that, that you bring money to the temple. and In fact, we're, we'll make sure there are plenty of places for you to be able to put all your money in. There are 13 boxes, 13 receptacles in the court of the women. They didn't want their, them to miss why they're there. You're supposed to give. And that's how they purchased their salvation. The rabbis would insist that you give alms to purchase your redemption. And the money went into the box, and it came out in the pockets of the scribes. Similar to our modern-day prosperity gospel. God, just send your money in. Yes, yes, I know it may be your last penny, but God will bless you if you just send your money to us. And that's wrong. That's compulsion. That's guilt-tripping. God loves a cheerful giver, not, not one who is it's imposed on them. That's why when Jesus came into this place earlier, he said, this is my father's house, a house of prayer, yet you've made it into a den of robbers. In fact, if you listen to sermons on this passage, and you come across J. Mack's message or John MacArthur's message, that's his take on this passage. He's focusing on the fact that this is a very bad thing that was happening. And she was a victim of a system that was very abusive. And we see that even in our day throughout political and religious culture. However, I want us to see what's right about this picture. This poor widow, destitute, one of the widows who had been devoured by the system, abused, she puts in her two cents. Not only was it two cents, it was all that she had. In spite of this sick, abusive system that was their world, she gave. Without even a thought, she put in everything that she had. And it was an illustration about the kind of giving that Jesus would be giving here in just a few hours. He gave. In just a matter of hours, he would give all. A sacrifice price that was more than all of the universe could handle. It was God giving his own son. For God so loved the world that he gave. 
when you know God gives like that, and you understand that from all of the Old Testament pointing to exactly what the Messiah would do and understanding Isaiah 53 and, and many other texts about the coming of this promised anointed one who would rescue us from our sin. You're grateful to give what you can. And you're putting your faith and trust in him, not in man. May that be the message. May that be our takeaway. Yes. Identify your pride and confess it and turn from it. How many of our relationships are strained because we're takers rather than givers? We have expectations rather than seeing the opportunities. <coughs> In fact, uh, let me pull up that list we went through earlier. These are just a few. You'll come up with your own. But would you make some observations of the difference between takers and givers and how it shows up in your own life and say, God, forgive me for being a taker. And number two, God, give me grace to be a giver. God's a giver, and God can help you because of his grace do what you cannot do on your own. Is that, that's to give graciously. God loves to give, and he loves a cheerful giver. So, so how, how, do we, how do we find motivation to be a giver? It's not the guilt trip. It's not to be seen of others. It's not to, to, to feel good about ourselves. I don't want you to go away from church today going, I feel better about myself because I'm doing something good. I want you to see the glory of our Redeemer and be so amazed that he would give so much for you and me that, that we're motivated to give just because of who he is. Would you praise God that he is a giver? God gives to you everything you need for life and godliness. He continues to get, pour out his grace, his giving for you. And the reason we stop to pray and thank God before a meal or after a meal or whenever you want to do it, but we're stopping to realize again and again how much God has given us, and we say thank you. And then you're motivated to want to be a giver as well. When you see who God is and what God has done, the giving is part of God's grace. You just want to. So rejoice knowing that Jesus is a giver who gave the ultimate gift. I am so glad that Jesus gave his all. And that's the gospel message. We who are sinners who have made such a mess of life, God made a promise that he would send his only son, the anointed one, this Messiah, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he obeyed his father's will, and he came to this earth to give his life a ransom for many. Thank God that Jesus gives. And when we know his giving pattern, we're motivated to give like that. That's the gospel. When I was just a young man, and early in ministry, there was a song we would often sing, and you'll recognize it. I won't sing it, but you'll recognize it. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I what? Freely give. It's not because I'm expected to or I want to make myself feel better about myself. It's because of what Jesus has done for me. And I want to say thank you, Lord. Lord, would you take what we've learned in the scriptures to see the problems that are around us, and may that bother us. Lord, may we be convicted of how often we step into the taker mode with those that are around us, 
Lord, may we focus on Jesus who loves us. And understanding the whole point of the Bible, the Old Testament pointing to this coming of the Christ, the Messiah, the one who gave his all for us. He died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day so that we could have life and assurance of life. And these things are written that we may know that we have eternal life because of your gift. For God, you so loved us that you gave us your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in you should not perish but have everlasting life. God, would we be so moved by your giving that you would make of us givers in every aspect of our life, with our time, with how we look to others and meet their needs, how we enjoy others instead of having expectations for others. Oh, God, may we be encouraged to give because of who you are and help us to glory in you, our Redeemer. I pray, God, that you would make this gospel message real in our lives so that we would live it out. I pray, God, that there would be many who hear this message, here today even, who would say, you know, I thank God that he's a giving God and he gave us his son, Jesus. And even though I'm nothing, I'm nothing more than this widow lady who didn't have much to give, but because I understand the gospel message, because I understand what the Old Testament is pointing to, because I understand what the New Testament shows us, because I see what this, the scriptures explain in detail about this gospel message, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. God, thank you that you are a giver, and may I be motivated to live for you because of what you've done for me. God, I thank you for this. Thank you that you've shown me the gospel. God, motivate me to love like that as we glory in our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.